Hello and welcome to this episode of the Psychology of Music podcast hosted by the York Music Psychology Group and dedicated to exploring the fascinating fields of music psychology, music cognition, systematic and empirical musicology. My name is Dr Mimi O'Neill and I am thrilled to welcome you or to welcome you back. The goal is to share our work with each other in the field and also make these exciting topics more accessible to a non-specialist audience. So whether you're a researcher, a student, a musician, a music lover, or just curious about the way that we interact with music, you're in the right place. Join us as we delve into a wide range of topics, from the emotional impact of music to the neuroscience of musical perception, all in a way that is easy to understand and engaging. We'll feature interviews with experts in the field who share their latest research findings and provide practical insights into how the new knowledge created can be applied. Our guest this week is Tudor Popescu, who comes from an engineering background. However, he subsequently obtained a PhD in experimental psychology from the University of Oxford. His main research interest is understanding the psychological and cultural foundations of music, with a particular interest in the perception and imagery of harmonic structures, parallels between music and language, and the cultural evolution of tonal music. He is currently a principal investigator in the Department of General Psychology at the University of Padova, and also affiliated with the Vienna Cognitive Science Hub. So hello and welcome to the Psychology of Music podcast and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. If I may, I'd like to start by asking you how you identify or how you situate your work in terms of music psychology, psychology of music, music cognition, empirical musicology, etc. Yeah, it's very nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Mimi. Um, It's good to, to talk to you and to your listeners. Yeah, so I've the way I've arrived in this field of music cognition slash psychology of music slash uh, systematic musicology is through really following what has always been as long as I can remember a very private interest of mine which is to to find out to really understand how music works in in my own mind so I mean in a way it's a very self-driven question uh, that it turns out to 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 really introspect and find out uh, a good answer to this question why does this what does music has its power over over us over me in this case that I've been asking myself since a, a teenager? It turns out you need to pile on a bunch of uh, disciplines and a bunch of you know knowledge from uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. You need to look at music history and music theory, but also then uh, look at psychology and look also into the brain if you if you care to. Then look at music as a as a cultural phenomenon as a social. Uh, Phenomena is something that has evolved. Uh, there are then things you can model using, you know, various uh, generative models, uh, things in computer science, artificial intelligence, and even linguistics. Is given the interesting report that music has with, with language, so all of these disciplines together, obviously, it's it's a very interdisciplinary field, music psychology. Uh, and I think the fact that there are so many disciplines involved. The way I sometimes feel uh, is that you feel a bit like a jack of all trades. Master of none would be the. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. Feel a, a little bit of that, but yeah, the, I think the conclusion is definitely that, as you, the title of your podcast is, music cognition matters. So you need to seriously ask a lot of uh, questions uh, that have a lot of complex answers behind them if you really want to understand, even at an introspective level, how it is that music works. 
people will have heard in your podcast introduction that you are a true polymath. So drawing all those things together is just day to day for you. Um, so the work that you're currently undertaking explores the shared resources in the music language relationship. Can you give us an overview of this topic and the evolutionary processes that have shaped both? Yeah, so I guess just for a bit of background, there is this um, history in uh, in branches of, of psychology and social science, what is known as human exceptionalism. So to think of us as a, as a species that is head and shoulders above um, all of the others with traits that are absolutely not found and not shared with any other uh, species. Um, fortunately, in, in my view, thanks to, to the comparative approach and uh, ethology and various branches of the life sciences, this um, opinion is, is narrower and narrower. So while we acknowledge that there are some, some traits that are uniquely uh, human, I think we acknowledge more and more that several of the, what we believe to be uh, truly uh, human is, is in fact shared with other species. And this tells us a lot about, like I said, about in this case, the evolutionary uh, story. Now, musical language is, I think, for, for a good reason, something that we may uh, hang on to as a, you know, the last bastion, so to speak, of human exceptionalism. So they are clearly have a important role for the for the species and they have a important rapport in the relationship to to one another um so there are these uh, affinities between them that have a evolutionary um uh, trait a uh, evolutionary aspect to them so they have they kind of um, stem from a single point in the evolutionary of the of the species going back far back uh, in time they were not two different things as they are today but we there are reasons to believe that there was um there were um one manifestation that eventually grew to be two separate things, one with more of a propositional um, communicative aim and the other one that served more of an uh, aesthetic or social bonding aim. So, um, but, but still there are these similarities between music and language. I mean, they're obviously both about a communication to conspecifics in one form or another, whether it's communication of emotion or, or of a very concrete uh, propositional uh, statement. Um, they have these commonalities in their formal structure, so they both tend to combine basic building blocks into larger and larger nested uh, structures in a hierarchical way. And um, yeah, the people argue about who came first, which seems like almost too simple question to to answer because and it's like I said, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg uh, problem. I mean, Darwin had his own opinions; uh, he, others out after him either challenged or supported those views. But I think what we know uh, specifically is that they sort of grew from one uh, another and they co-evolved and uh, sociality, so our impulse for, for being a, a social species and to, for, for social bonding uh, played an important role in the development of, of both. Um, but I think for in the case of music, I think people are acknowledging more and more what an important thing it is that it is a, uh, at base, at, at heart, a social activity. And those of us who, you know, enjoy classical music and are kind of nagged by people coughing in the audience and could, we only wish that to, to listen to this alone in, in peace might be particularly su surprised at how important this, this notion of, um, of sociality and music is something that is, is done together. Uh, and even in, in the solitary of Europe, in the, you know, of your own solitary experience with music, there are still things that run in the background that presuppose or kind of uh, assume a, a missing 
counterpart or audience or group around you somehow. And yeah, there are various demonstrations, I think, that still speak to the special relationship that music language have, such as uh, Diana Deutsch came up with uh, a bunch of famous ones, such as a speech to song illusion and others like that, that kind of uh, we creatively allow anyone to to see that indeed they have an interesting relationship to one another, musical language. And I think they they form definitely, from my point of view, uh, a, a very fertile and interesting terrain for, for research to explore. Where did your interest in this topic come from? It really came from, from music itself and just being very analytical and very introspective about my own state. So once I started discovering classical music, so I guess in my in my teenage years, I was, in, in addition to just enjoying the various states that you know music puts you through, and it wasn't just classical music, it was also folk and, and rock music and, and other types of music. But the question was that was always in the back of my mind and that actually became more and more uh, concrete as I was getting more interested in the question itself was how can something that is so abstract and so arcane and so arbitrary really um how can it have so much power over my attention and my emotion my physical and mental states and like i said i at some point I, I discovered that there is a discipline that that looks into just this question and yeah some of us take a leap of faith and are trying to see if we can make an entire career out of out of researching this kind of stuff which is obviously what what you would want to to do is it's really a, a dream topic for for research not that easy to make an academic career out of that turns out but still we're uh, we're we're trying and i'm trying and um I'm as interested in this topic as as ever. And now, of course, I now know that music really hijacks our reward system, as uh, I think other uh, guests that you've had in your seminar series uh, will be talking uh, about. Um, uh, just just as other activities do, that you know, hijack our reward system for much more obvious evolutionary uh, reasons than music. So music is a bit of an odd case because it does all of that without it being obvious what role it has for either survival or, or reproduction. But yeah, this is definitely still very much a, a live question. How does it have this this power over us? And um, I think, I would, yeah, I think in a, in a sense, it comes back to sociality. So Stefan Kölsch has this study uh, whereby he asked people to, to listen to, uh, to pieces of music that were composed either by a, a human composer or by an AI or they were told at least that the music was composed by an AI. Um, and it turns out that parts of the social brain uh, light up as people think about who might be behind the, the person who composed uh, music, theory of mind and all these processes uh, come online. So this is this is implicit sociality that I was uh, talking about. So, which I think speaks to this abstraction that I, that I alluded to, to earlier. So, Music is abstract indeed, but it, it it presents some mental scenarios, some of them very social in, in origin, or it presents or it represents, it depends how you want to, to think about it. And it just plays around with these notions that are very, they can be found in all areas of, of life, you know, stability, uh, instability, you know, consonance and dissonance, both in the acoustic as well as in the cognitive sense. Um, and all of these things that evoke um, they, they do have a clear evolutionary uh, role and that music has at its disposal in order to just make this um, imaginary scenario that we just fall prey to and we, we treat it as if it was a, a real thing and hence 
all the suite of enjoyable emotions that all of us are into as long as we're listening to this podcast, I guess. That's the hope anyway. So I have read previously that you've written or suggested that the relationship between music and language is an example of culturally transmitted behaviours. Mm. Are there other examples of this that you can give us or, or can you just tell me a bit more about what you mean by cultural transmission? Mm. Yeah, uh, there are definitely many other examples. And uh, I should say many others before we have posited this and have brought good evidence to bear that music and language are cases of cultural transmission. I would say that as humans, we have this instinct. We can kind of at the first level approximation call it that and say that we have an instinct to, to, to make music and, and express ourselves through, through language. Um, but obviously the way that each specific culture or tradition does music and language is, is very uh, variable, obviously acro uh, across the, the, the globe. And it's heritable. So there is heritability in this in that you tend to speak the language that your parents and your uh, culture have bequeathed to, to you. And the same for musical uh, traditions. And you make innovations, of course, but you don't start as a blank slate, so to use that expression. You sort of continue that onwards. So there is a, an element of uh, heritability in, in both music and language. And there's obviously variation, as I, as I said, in both of them, strong variation. Um, and clearly some ways of making music or uh, making language, coming up with new styles, new melodies, or with new words, new sentences, new accents, pronunciations, and so on, catch on more than others. So there is a kind of a struggle for, for survival among melodies or among words and so on. So, so if you accept that there is heritability and variation and this sort of competition between the elements of music and language, then you already have the the three main ingredients uh, that are at the bottom of, of selection, natural selection in, in, in particular. So it's this kind of analogies and others that have been made between organic or genetic evolution and the cultural evolution, as it's, as it's known, of, of music and language that have led to a very now huge and very productive and quickly advancing field of, of cultural evolution, which I think uh, if one focuses on musical language, one still has all their work uh, ahead of them, because there are still many questions left unanswered as, as to how exactly this transmission uh, occurs in each of the two domains and what are the similarities and what are the differences. Briefly, there is there is an element of both imitation and innovation. Like I said, the imitation that we may have an impulse to, to do will inevitably be um, uh, inaccurate at some point. And one can think of this as either an error or as a uh, you know, haphazard uh, mistake that has led to some innovation that catches on and so on. And so the, the specific trade-off between imitation and innovation is, again, something that varies between uh, cultures. Um, and, and so if you, if you look at the cultural evolution of, of musical language, you will be interested in exactly what the roles are of these two uh, essential modes of propagation, to call it uh, this way. Either you imitate or you, or you innovate. And this doesn't just apply to music and language. Of course, it can you you can think of just very uh, concrete examples like the the know-how of making some sort of uh, seafaring vessel, or a canoe, or a boat, or something decorative like a necklace or or something. This is something that likewise you get uh, you inherit in some sense uh, through a cultural medium, uh, but that each generation adds something uh, new to it such that there is this element of, of cumulative uh, cultural evolution. And again, cumulative culture is one of those last bastions of 
of uh, of something that may truly be uniquely human. Although I think there are some researchers in the field of animal behavior that might uh, might bring us some some news. As well as chatting to me for the podcast, you've already presented as part of the Music Cognition Matters speaker series. Can you give us a brief overview of what you covered in your presentation? Yeah, so in the presentation that I gave in your uh, seminar series, I, I selected two studies that speak to this uh, this uh, idea of music something as, uh, as being something that happens within each of our minds, but uh, with you know uh, interesting enough detail that one can keep zooming in further and further, and the granularity of it just keeps getting more and more interesting. But also something that taking a step back um, happens between our minds, something that may uh, evoke a sociality or that may um, evolve from generation to generation or horizontally between generations. So I, I tried to to give a, a taste of music between minds and music within minds, so to speak. So I, I presented um, uh, two studies. One of them was actually within this line of work that you've mentioned with parallels between music and language. Um, and the other study is uh, kind of um, is only concerned with music, but it kind of aspires to then uh, extend to incorporate language as well. So the first study that I uh, mentioned that, that I presented is um, is a study uh, looking at how emotion arises out of um, out of songs with uh, with words. Um, and the idea is that when once you listen to a song that has uh, lyrics, there is this feeling that there is a unified effective experience. So you just uh, let yourself be uh, led on by the emotion that the songs uh, give you. With it's, And it's a very seamless experience. You don't really go back between, your attention doesn't go back and forth between, say, um, thinking about chord progressions and thinking about the value of words or something. It's, 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 it's all a very um, streamlined experience. And so this uh, study was a, just a very exploratory, um, intuitive, perhaps naive experience to really ask how is it that the tricks that each of these two domains has up its uh, sleeve. So the ways of manipulating um, tension really is, is the central concept, concept in that, in that uh, study. Um, how, do the, how do they work with one another? Um, so how do, say, tense and dissonant chords uh, combine with words that evoke more a darker or more serene uh, experience? Um, and this was just uh, at the beginning, just a, a behavioral study that just uh, looked at how ratings for um, musical emotion construed as as tension vary when you ask people to the, to direct their attention to either the words in the in the song or to the to the music line in the in the song, um, as opposed to a critical condition in which they were uh, they were asked to to think of the two as a as as a whole. Um, and we use the particular case of Western uh, choral music, uh, so choral-like uh, pieces. Um, and yeah, the, the, there's a, an intermediary conclusion is that music seems to have a more salient role in kind of leading our emotion at at least at the more granular temporal level. So it's a second by second or a few seconds to few seconds level. And that there is a more of a complex relationship in terms of how uh, language then adds on its own contribution in coloring, shaping that, that uh, emotion. Um, and so as, as, as always, this study 
open up many more questions than it actually answers. We now we want to do a, a follow up with where we also um, record from various parts of the of the the brain with uh, from the cortex with EEG and from the from sub subcortical nuclei using papillometry, uh, and we also want to extend it to to a cross cultural study and to to see whether these mechanisms of uh, linguistic tension and musical tension might vary. Uh, between musical uh, traditions. Um, so leaving it aside the interesting but you know particular case of, of Western music. So this was the study on uh, music and language. And the other one that I mentioned is just about music was specifically about the emergence of features of music that have to do with tonality out of uh, cultural transmission. Um, and we used a paradigm that's very popular in the in has been popularized by, by by Simon Kirby in the field of language uh, evolution and has been taken up by um, others in the last uh, year, the group of Norway Jacobi, for instance, and Andrea Arvignani. Um, and the idea was that we we asked people to listen to melodies made up of random pitches, random melodies that really made no sense. And we asked them to, to listen to them and, and sing them. And this uh, formed a chain of transmission like in a telephone uh, game. So people heard a melody and they sung it back and then somebody else heard what the previous participants uh, sung and then then from that back and so on and it seems that at the end of a, of a transmission chain like that you you have some some music begins to to take on certain features that uh, are characteristic of of tonal uh, music even though you, you departed from something that had no tonal element uh, at all um, and also in the in, in the temporal domain there are some features that Again, put one in mind of the music language uh, links, such as last uh, syllable or the last uh, note of a phrase uh, extending as it happens in speech. So phrase final uh, lengthening. Um, so like I said, this kind of uh, things of elements of um, of music, uh, specific features of, of music uh, arising out of transmission chains has been shown for, for the rhythm domain uh, by uh, Ravignani and Jacobi, whom I've mentioned earlier. But here we try to do it for the for the pitch domain and to see if we get something that um, speaks to the organization of of, of pitch, um, so something that approaches tonality, not necessarily in its Western form, uh, but the idea of a, of a central uh, of a tonal center, uh, and it seems that it does after after only a few uh, iterations of transmission, and the next step is then to try and bring. Um, language together. This sounds very dogmatic, like I'm trying to bring the language uh, dimension into it, but it's just interesting to 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 think there of what would happen if you um if you if you if you pass an ambiguous stimulus that is kind of between music and, and language and can you sort of uh with transmission can you nudge it towards something that, as may have happened in evolution, then becomes either more music-like or more language-like. So this is a, this is actually a, a study that I'm, I'll be working on uh, next with, with a very brilliant young uh, researcher called Felix Haiduk. Exciting. How interesting. Well, um, we will definitely look out for that one. All of the, the presentations from the speaker series have been recorded thus far, and we're currently discussing a mechanism for sharing these. So if this is a topic that is of interest to you and you would like to catch up with Tudor's presentation, then keep an eye on our website, mus-cog-matters.glitch.me for more details. So we've had a little glimpse there of some things you've got coming up. Is there anything else exciting that you're working on at the moment that we should look out for? 
Well, so a study that I've been working on for a while, uh, actually, but it will hopefully uh, be published before too long is, is one about musical imagery. So as a somebody whose musical experiences are much more in my own head than you know expressed as a as a as a musician so as a frustrated pianist and guitarist you could you could say uh, is is i i find i find this phenomenon of musical imagery so the the ability to just have entire symphonies or sonatas or songs playing in our in our minds very very interesting so and the study i'm describing was an fmri study in which we looked at musical images through the lens of harmonic syntax. So we asked people to listen to musical phrases whose final chord was either audible or was not audible, so it was kind of left to the imagination, um, and asked them to fill that chord in their minds, so to, in a way, sing along with it and to kind of internalize the, the, the unfolding of that particular chord sequence. And we wanted to check whether the expectation that uh, inevitably accrues as one listens to this uh, chord sequence and one of, as uh, as one approaches the end of of the cadence, which was a half cadence or a perfect cadence in this case, whether this kind of expectation is is salient enough that it can be detected as a as a signature, as a as a neural signature with with fMRI, and we found some evidence of of that. So whether the the stimulus was a perfect or a half cadence left a recognizable enough signature in terms of the activated brain networks we used uh, multi-voxel pattern analysis in other methods in in uh, functional mri and so yeah i think this this study uh, speaks to the importance of of harmonic syntax not just in using that we hear and that we grow an expectation from just based on statistical learning but how that statistical learning enables us to to fill in for the for um musical events, chords, let's say in this case, that we haven't yet uh, heard. And so that the brain might almost not know the difference between music that you hear or music that you imagine, which is in fact a result that, that people have, have known for exactly for already two decades now, I would say. Would this be related to the mirror neuron theory or the, the findings of the mirror neuron research? I th- yeah, I, I, I think I think it is because with... Mirror neurons, it, it's, it's, um, there are shared, the, the idea would be the proposal, which I think there's quite a good evidence for in the, in the primate brain is that there are, uh, shared neural populations that are responsible for seeing motor action and for performing that action with one's own hands, say. Um, in this case, the similarity between the brain response of somebody who's listening to music and somebody who's imagining uh, that same piece of music, say, I think has to do with running uh, a mental simulation of what it would be uh, for me to hear out that uh, music. And often that involves uh, vocalizing that uh, music to oneself or sub-vocalizing, as the literature calls it. And so actually part of this brain network that I've been describing in this fMRI study uh, involves an area called the supplementary motor area which is involved in, in making minute um, movements of the, of the larynx that enable one to, to control the vocal tract so as to produce a pitch that is higher or lower and to basically follow a melody and to, and to sing. Um, and people have, have proposed that um, musical imagery is something that is almost indistinguishable from this process of trying to recreate music with your own vocal apparatus. So I think uh, the, I think you're right that it very much speaks to the idea of um, simulating a motor action by observing it in others 
so there's then the analogy between perception of music and the imagery, just like there is between visual perception of, of an action and the intention or the preparing for the executing that motion yourself. Yeah, re- I mean, really interesting. Is there a timeline? Do you have an expectation of when that might be published? Yeah, that paper is actually um, in uh, under review now. Um, okay. And I will be submitting the revision soon. So I think hopefully with a bit of luck, it will be out within the next month. Fantastic. I will definitely will look out for that one. Thank you. Yeah, it's a study I've been working on for a long time. And it, it means, uh, yeah, I've put quite a lot of thought into it. And hopefully it won't be the last investigation I, I make of musical imagery again. Then may, I, I should also mention that with your own, very own Andrea Schiavio, I also played a, a much more minor role in, uh, in a couple of studies that Andrea has been uh, leading which essentially revolve, of course, around his main interest, I think, of, of musical creativity and musical performance. Um, so these are, again, two studies that are almost published. So one step away from being published. The first one is asking the question whether there is something about the way we learn music, either when we're alone or when we are paired with somebody. So when we are learning together with, with somebody, it leaves a trace upon how we perform that piece of music and how listeners to it might might rate according to dimensions such as expressivity, uh, articulation, uh, and so on. Um, so the hypothesis there was that usually that you learn with somebody because of that inherent sociality that I mentioned at the start, um, leaves an imprint that is detectable later down the line when you ask people to, to, to rate the piece of music that has been learned uh, like that and performed on, on a piano, say. Uh, along various uh, dimensions. So this is a study that Andrea started a few years ago, and I, um, yeah, I kind of analyzed data for it. Um, and another, I think, bigger uh, study is where we um, kind of explore the process of composition. And once again, coming to, back to sociality, we try to find a role for the social lives of composers, the secret social lives of composers, and how that might impact their creativity. So this was more of a psychometric study where there was a uh, an instrument that was um, psychometrically defined and validated that tried to express creativity, not just through its core features that have been described in the literature, but also in terms of things that like emotional support, uh, loneliness, um, friendships, and so on. So things that speak to the social relationship that might be going on in the in parallel in the composer's uh, life. So I think that that's a study that has a lot of potential. Uh, so yeah, people who are interested in, in composition and in the process of, of composing might want to look out for that. I think that that's also in the, in the works for later this year. Great. We'll look out for that as well. Thank you. My final question that I ask all guests is what are the most interesting questions that have not yet been explored in music psychology? What are the topics that interest you and, and what can we still learn more about? Yeah, well, how much time do we have? <laughs> I think, yeah, there, there are some light motifs, let's say, that I think I, I think are just so fruitful and so interesting and just so, I don't want to say poorly understood, but it's a bit like with that metaphor of the piece of chalk that you use to draw a point on the, on the blackboard. And the bigger the chalk gets in fact the more you realize how much of a boundary it has with the unknown black area surrounding it so i think going back to the study of musical imagery that i and, and the similarity between perception and imagery something that i find is uh, is a very rife terrain for future research is 
how this feedback loop works between what we expect to, to hear and what we may have been uh, trained either in, uh, implicitly or uh, either explicitly or just implicitly uh, musically trained and what we actually perceive to be the case and what we imagine to be the case. And the reason this is interesting is because uh, this speaks to, to a notion that is now increasingly well modeled and understood, which is that of the Bayesian brain. Um, which goes back to even an older idea that Helmholtz had of perception as unconscious inference or something like that, he, he called it. So the idea is that you can, you can say a lot about what one uh, perceives or imagine, just taking as an input the experience that that person has had up to that point and how the top-down influence that it exerts uh, interacts with the actual auditory uh, simulation that goes into the ear, so with a bottom-up uh, element. Um, because then it could create two completely different uh, experiences in two different people who have different uh, life histories, different trainings, different expectations, different um, moods, uh, and so on, even though they're exposed to exactly the same uh, stimulus. So I think as somebody who's using neuroimaging in, in my work, I, I would really looking forward to have to see uh, a result of uh, ideal to contribute to it, but at least to see it done by, by my, my colleagues. That really gives us a, a deep insight about how music works in the brain that even skeptics cannot say is just yet another reductionist uh, detail. So, you know, something that connects with the larger pic picture that we get, for instance, from um, cultural evolution or from uh, evolutionary psychology that I've been mentioning before. Um, so, for instance, you could, instead of uh, scanning the brains of uh, single subjects at a, at a time and just do uh, the statistical exercise of kind of putting these together and kind of trying to derive what the typical uh, response of one subject's brain is to music of, of a particular kind or so on, one could look at, uh, at scanning uh, the, the brains of multiple subjects at the same time. And in fact, people have been doing that. Uh, so to hyper scan. And then to see what comes out of the experience of uh, either making or listening to, to music at the same time, because there are reasons to believe that it's not just something quantitative that changes, but really something uh, qualitative, just because of the important role that sociality uh, plays in the course of music making. Um, and I think maybe along these lines, it, it something could be then revealed more about this apparent paradox that music presents of unity and diversity. So we obviously know that all cultures have, have music and that they both, that they, they vary uh, a lot. And yet that there are some um, traits of, of music across the, the globe that, that may be at least statistical or quasi-universal, if not universal. Um, and so I'm hoping for a result that would kind of suggest a reconciliation of uh, those who are minded to look for universals and those who instead prefer to document cross-cultural variation, because I don't think that these needs be mutually uh, exclusive uh, endeavors. Great ambitions, um, big questions to answer, though. Indeed. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your work with me. We will keep the listeners updated on, on how we're going to distribute the, the Music Cognition Matters speaker series presentations. But for now, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Mimi. It was really a, a real pleasure participating in your podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Watch Diana Omegi's Music Cognition Matters presentation at one o'clock this Friday, the 16th of June. 
Link is in the show notes and can also be found at mus-cog-matters.glitch.me.